0: this is a diet of Brussels uh, it's our birthday again it's uh, five years since this podcast started uh, in the wake of the 2015 general election with that surprising result which uh, set us definitively on the course that we are still following I'm coming to you from uh, my front room I uh, because uh, we finally found something that uh, makes uh, Brexit look relatively unimportant uh, in the form of a global pandemic. That might sound trite and I've talked already about what uh, uh, we might learn from that particular uh, event in previous episodes. And really the, the reason why uh, we've had a bit of a slowdown of production of uh, episodes is there's not been much to tell you. However, this uh, anniversary is probably a good point to reflect once again on where we are and the long run of that uh, process that uh, stretches back well before 2015 into the long run of uh, British European policy and British politics more generally. Right now I think we still find ourselves in this very strange position where the British government talks. frequently about the importance of getting brexit done of sticking to the timeline of the end of this year for uh, a new agreement with the eu but at the same time uh, it doesn't uh, act in a way that is consistent with achieving that goal so we can see that in a number of different ways most obviously uh, we have a repeated Complaints, and I think it is a complaint from the EU that the UK doesn't produce text; it doesn't come up with suggestions on how to address the obvious gaps between the two sides in the negotiation. So, uh, the EU has uh, noted this in relation to the future relationship but also in relation to the uh, implementation of the Irish Protocol, which also needs to be ready for the end of this year uh, to run alongside uh, whatever deal or no deal might need to be in place. And that's not simply a matter of nicety Uh, about, you know, our ambition is to have a negotiated agreement. It's a legal commitment under the terms of the Withdrawal Agreement, which is a treaty to which the UK has uh, made commitment. Now, that uh, gap that exists is uh, a very uh, substantial one. And the absence of detailed text from the UK can only really lead to one of two conclusions. One, this is a deliberate strategy on the part of the uh, government that by withholding text it might hope to improve its position to frustrate the EU or to uh, trick it into making some kind of uh, movement. The alternative is is that it doesn't have the text uh, available because it's unable to produce it. And frankly, neither of those options are uh, good options in simple negotiating terms. What it means is that the UK uh, largely finds itself having to follow the direction laid out by the EU, even as it complains about having to follow the direction laid out by the EU. A second key area that we see inconsistency is the lack of clarity about what the objective of negotiations might be. Um, This week we've had uh, Michael Gove, who is uh, the lead minister uh, for negotiations. giving evidence to Parliament where he suggested that perhaps uh, there might not be a willingness to uh, go for the zero tariff zero quota model that the EU offered uh, largely because it would mean uh, that uh, stepping back from that would allow the UK to get out of its obligations in relation to a level playing field. So remember this uh, is the idea that If you're going to remove uh, quantitative restrictions to trade, these tariffs and quotas, that then you need some protections to make sure that the UK doesn't undercut European producers. So you have equivalent uh, standards for uh, environmental protection, for workers rights, uh, general conditions of production, so that there is uh, some kind of uh, more effective competition purely on price rather than uh, social dumping kind of approach. Now that has been a big problem for the UK government. It uh, hasn't been willing to uh, take the space offered by the EU which simply says there needs to be a kind of an equivalence in these different areas um, it's only in the area of state aids that the EU is saying the UK needs to follow EU rules on state aids and have EU implementation uh, of that particular uh, policy area. And instead it wants to be able to set its own rules even though it simultaneously says those rules are at the moment are at least as strong as European rules. So it's not about substantively wanting to diverge, in the UK's eyes. It's simply about having the power to diverge uh, and about uh, the representation of that thing. Now how is that inconsistent with trying to get this process done by the end of the year? Well, as our various trade experts have pointed out, the advantage of a zero tariff zero uh, quota model is that uh, it's simple everything is zero and then the things that you have to agree on are what the elements of the level playing field are and in this case those would be a continuation of existing standards for the uk because remember the uk still in transition follows eu rules in all of these areas if, however, you abandon that model and you say, OK, we don't want to have level playing fields, so we will accept some tariffs and quotas, then you need to start working through that list of tariffs and quotas. And there are tens of thousands of lines of highly detailed uh, product description, each of which tracks its own tariff and its own quota. Now, the UK clearly is not saying we just accept everything that the EU Uh, puts on us. Uh, Instead, it's saying uh, we would like to accept some tariffs, which means you've got to work through all of those tariffs, which means a a vast new block of work, much, much bigger than anything that might relate to uh, the level playing field, which makes it even harder to uh, actually achieve the timetable uh, that we've talked about. It also, I think, has a broader political point, which is that stepping back from that zero zero model means that the UK once again takes a further step back. That's, you know, having not wanted to have a close relationship, wants to have a distant relationship, and then wants to have an even more distant relationship uh, as time goes on. The third area that we can see inconsistency is that the UK is not doing the work that it will need to do anyway, whatever the outcome. Um, In terms of preparing for even the kind of deal that the UK wants requires a vast number of uh, new officials uh, and infrastructure to be put in place, legal frameworks to be uh, secured, and uh, all of that to be ready for the end of this year. Now this week we have seen some moves to start recruiting the 50,000 or so uh, officials that would need to be uh, helping with dealing with the new paperwork requirements that would come from a deal in relation to uh, standards, checks, customs, uh, controls, all of the rest. But that process, is uh, already well behind what might be expected for a recruitment exercise of that size, uh, even in the best of times, and if you need any reminding, this is not the best of times. You also don't see the development of the necessary infrastructure, of ports and airports to deal with the additional controls that will be necessary to make this system uh, work. again this is even in the best case where the uk gets the deal that it wants that deal will require extensive uh infrastructure and personnel uh again we can think about that both in the broader context of the uk but also in the more narrow context of northern ireland and the way that the implementation process will work that too will require a very significant deal so even if the UK is traveling optimistically, uh, it's not traveling practically. Uh, it's doing some things but not other things. And in terms of its credibility of achieving or working towards or committing itself to a particular course of action, this does not look like a government that is doing that. Furthermore, we also see this uh, kind of ambivalence, and I think this is maybe the last point, that the UK doesn't look like a party that is trying hard to make this work uh, in the broader sense. Uh, The past week or so we've had a a big argument between the two sides, Uh, well not a big argument, but a big point of disagreement about whether the EU should have an office in Belfast. Now its argument is that the Withdrawal Agreement requires uh, the UK to uh, undertake the uh, implementation of the protocol in Northern Ireland, uh, but the EU has an interest in ensuring that that is done properly. And previously letters had been exchanged between senior negotiators which confirmed that the UK. Uh, accepted the need uh, for an EU presence in London, in Belfast, in Cardiff and in in Edinburgh uh, as part of ongoing uh, good relations and effective implementation. Those same uh, officials now find that they are in disagreements about exactly that issue. Um, The UK now says that there is no reason for an EU office in uh, Belfast That it suggests a lack of trust on the part of the EU about UK motives uh, and it serves no formal purpose. So, uh, no, the EU is not allowed to be present. That inconsistency, that lack of uh, follow through on what in this case are more binding commitments on the UK relating to the protocol sets a tone which suggests that the UK is not fully on board with the process. It looks like uh, a body that is trying to evade its uh, previous commitments, let alone uh, get into uh, commitments that it can be trusted to do beforehand. Now, you can argue that the EU has contributed to this that by ensuring that the withdrawal agreement covered the points uh, that it did to make sure that whilst it had the UK uh, metaphorically over a barrel during the Article 50 process, that extracting concessions on finances, on citizens' rights on Northern Ireland, that uh, it's now uh, merely uh, reaping what it has sowed. But it's also true that the UK's uh, vacillations about what it's trying to achieve, its repeated backtracking on uh, previous statements, makes the EU very nervous. And we end up then in a bit of a spiral of distrust. Um, Michel Barnier, who's not a man, often moved to uh sharp words certainly a couple of weeks ago was really very unhappy about the way that negotiations were going and the lack of engagement by the uk now in all of this we're what 15 minutes in i've not really talked about coronavirus because coronavirus is not actually the issue in all of this all of these things are true Uh, even without uh, a uh, disease that is keeping us all at home and uh, upending our economies. Clearly, though, coronavirus does change the parameters of uh, what is going on, the capacity to uh, deal with issues. And again, you kind of see this on occasions. It's odd it doesn't come up more, where journalists ask ministers about whether they're concentrating completely on Uh, coronavirus, and they say, yes, of course, it's the most important issue, and then saying, well, okay, so how then can you also be concentrating on Brexit at the same time? How does that trade-off work? That, I think, is going to be really the story of the rest of this year. However, it goes with a, a transition, I seem to remember some weeks ago, Back at the beginning of this lockdown I was more bullish about an extension coming that there seemed to be signs that that was uh, happening. Um, right now I'm back to being much more cautious. The absence of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings from number 10 did see a period where there was a um, lot less heavy-handed uh, rhetoric and uh, positioning Um, that has come back in the past couple of uh, weeks as those two individuals have returned to uh, their previous operations. And again, it suggests that these two are the ones who are driving a lot of the uh, process on the UK side. That The uh, symbolic importance of a Brexit delivered at the end of this year matters at least as much as the substance of what that Brexit contains. But again, going back to those things I've talked about, there is an inconsistency. Sometimes these things are about substance, sometimes they are about timing, and uh, we do not have uh, a clear line, or indeed a suggestion that there is a clear policy uh, within senior government circles. But let's turn now to thinking about the longer picture. Have we got very far in this process? Five years ago when I started this, it was in a spirit of, well, what was it a spirit of? I think it was a spirit of trying something new uh, because I was interested. Uh, I thought that this was going to be a, a key issue and it was clear that we were going to have a referendum at some point. But, Uh, Again, I don't think I had a sense at that point of what this was all for. What was the purpose? What was the point? And as the years have ticked past, I'm still not sure I know that I can tell you what the point of all of this has been. Yes, the EU matters. Yes, it has shaped... British lives in ways that some people find highly objectionable, other people find highly beneficial. But a lot of the debate has been about discontent, about unhappiness, that the way things are isn't working for me. And I don't really want to put any more precision on that because it's more or less that vague it's not just about the eu but it's also about the eu the eu becomes a, a symbol of other discontents certainly when i think about the work that i've done over the years talking about euro skepticism it's very hard to find examples of people or arguments where the eu is the problem in and of itself that uh it is not simply a, a symbol but it is also the substantive issue and that simply by removing ourselves from that system we solve the problem almost always it is uh, representative of something else of neoliberalization or of bureaucracy or of uh foreign interference or of uh whatever else you want to uh criticize and again, the overarching nature of the EU, the way that it reaches into so many different areas of public policy, the fact that it's not a single-purpose organisation, makes it easy to say, oh, the EU's here, things are going badly, it must be the EU's fault, and I will uh, take that as uh, as the, the way to deal with it. And we see that with coronavirus, just as we saw it with the financial crisis, just as we saw it with the migration crisis just as we saw it with anything else that you care to think of as going bad in the last uh, 60 years but this is also an important anniversary not just because of uh, the 2015 general election but also because of uh, ve day it's interesting for me that we talk about this as ve day uh, partly because it's not really been a thing. You know, maybe every five years the UK remembers that the, uh, the war finished at this time uh, and we should do things. But it's more interesting because for many other parts of Europe, this is thought of not as VE Day, but rather as Europe Day. This is also the occasion, not uncoincidentally, of the uh, declaration by Robert Schumann uh, which led to the creation of the coal and steel community, and sh- traditionally is the point at which uh, the EU celebrates its uh, founding fathers and its uh, uh, foundation. Now that declaration in 1950, so 70 years ago, really is emblematic of the difference between British and uh, many other European debates. Third V Day is one in which we look back to the war with uh, positive thoughts about uh, the defeat of fascism, with uh, positive thoughts about the role that the country played in fighting that fight, and yes in some cases a more uh, a nationalistic kind of view that this is the point at which uh, the British beat everyone uh, and won the war. By contrast, Europe Day is presented more as one of the post-war period. It's the point at which we acknowledge that for all of the violence, all of the horror of fighting, we also have a shared experience, a shared purpose that requires us to find ways to work with each other, that Europe Day is about reconciliation. It's about the way in which politics is transcendent of national boundaries and national borders and of the need to think to the future, that if we work apart then we merely raise the chances of falling into that situation that we did in the 1920s where the turn to autarky, the turn to uh, fascism uh, came out of what was an unfair post-war settlement after the Great War. Now i'm sure some listeners will be sucking their teeth and saying ah oh, yes but the peace mission that was all those years ago and that doesn't matter now and that's not what the eu is but it still is there to some extent it does inform attitudes that so, as we think about the second world war yes it is increasingly distant it's three quarters of a century ago but we have many people who fought in that uh, conflict, who remember it personally, and whose experiences are shaped deeply by it. Our whole political system is shaped deeply by it. So as it fades, it will become less important, but the message that I think this sends us is one of thinking not just about the past, but also about the future. Now, in the context of this very minor podcast, which has gone on much longer than I ever thought it would, I think it means we are likely to be having at least another five years of this particular process before we can get to something where we can say Brexit is done. The best case is that at the end of this year, the UK and the EU signed some narrow agreement on cooperation but to achieve that there will have to be a radical trimming down of its contents so that it is very bare bones primarily done so that the British government can say look we got there when everyone else said that we couldn't and again this is a government that has a track record of hitting its targets uh, uh rhetorically even if the substance is perhaps somewhat lacking i take you back to the withdrawal agreement itself Uh, i take you to uh, the coronavirus testing target of 100 a day it's not to say that those things didn't uh happen ah but rather to say that those things things didn't happen in quite the way that you might have uh, Uh, expected or anticipated if you had been there at the beginning of the process. That minimal uh, agreement that the UK would be able to put together is one that almost certainly will have to leave various issues hanging. Um, There are going to be a, a wide number of policy areas where Particular interests are going to feel that they have not uh, got what they need. Um, In some cases, they will adapt to the new realities uh, because they will have to. In others, though, they will continue to lobby hard for further liberalisation as it goes on. At the same time, we are also going to have, uh, in the best case, an implementation of the Northern Irish Protocol, Uh, but it almost certainly will come with some difficulties. Uh, There will be some gaps that haven't been fully anticipated, bottlenecks that need to be unblocked in the process. But also, more uh, strategically, the different position of Northern Ireland in uh, relation to the EU will cause some internal dynamics within the UK. We're going to see more tensions on the territorial arrangement of uh, British politics which will make it harder for uh, all involved to move this along. So the territorial issue I think is going to be an important one Uh, and as that uh, changes and shifts uh, we are going to see uh, I think further impacts on the UK-EU relationship Uh, and here I'll mention Scotland as the other obvious example, that once uh, the coronavirus uh, effects have settled down a bit, the Scottish government, I think, is going to come back to this question of independence once more. uh, And, you know, part of the way of managing that might be about thinking about a different way of Scotland engaging with the EU. So this process at the moment is setting itself up for becoming One that uh, causes much more negotiation, much more tension uh, between the parties. The EU itself is going to have a long way still to go uh, in sorting itself out. It has many ongoing challenges and issues. Uh, The question of whether another member state will leave uh, anytime soon I think is not as uh, distant as it would like it to be. Um, The experience over corona bonds uh, has not been a happy one, particularly for Italy. Uh, The ongoing turmoil of the relationship with Hungary, uh, which is not being handled well by any uh, side, I think will be a problem quite aside from there's just general grumbling and dislocation mm-hmm. that comes from things such as uh, Germany's Constitutional Court with its ruling uh, this week about uh, the uh, work of mm-hmm. the European mm-hmm. Central Bank. So best case you've got a lot more of me in the years to come. Uh, worst case You've got very much more of me in the years to come uh, as we go along. I'd like, however, to say thank you to all of you for listening uh, over the years, for your contributions Uh, over the years. We'll be trying to get some more guests on because I I think people uh, respond well to that. And uh, if you have queries or suggestions for episodes, I am always happy to take suggestions. So, uh, you can find us at uh and on Twitter at of Brussels. Uh I will talk to you soon and uh, maybe one day we'll have something a bit more substantive to talk about. Until then, goodbye.